chapter 4, looking at verses 1 to 5 together, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Most of you know that I grew up in a pastor's home. That means I was certainly aware a few times of the criticism that my father endured from some unhappy members in the congregation. In fact, there was an in-house joke about that in our family, that when the critical people got home after church, they were probably, quote, having the pastor for Sunday lunch, not having him over, having him for lunch. We called it having roasted pastor for lunch. Well, even the Apostle Paul had to endure criticism. One example of that was how some in the church at Corinth treated him. And that is part of the background underlying what he wrote in the letter we know as 1 Corinthians, including the passage in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, that we are studying today. Now, it was the Apostle Paul who first uh, preached the gospel in the city of Corinth. Corinth was an important and wealthy city and also a pagan city. It was located on an isthmus, that's what you call a little narrow strip of land, an isthmus. In particular, it was located on that narrow strip of land that separated northern and southern Greece. The Apostle Paul spent 18 months there in the city. It was on his second missionary journey, and God was gracious to bring some of his sheep to himself and to establish the Corinthian church. If you want some more detail about Paul's work in Corinth during that time, you can find that in Acts chapter 18. It was sometime later, though, after his ministry there, that Paul wrote them this letter, and he wrote it to confront some serious problems that had surfaced in the church. There were problems such as divisions and party rivalry. And some people in the church were enamored with worldly wisdom and worldly thinking and were wanting to bring that thinking into the ministry of the church. And some doubted Paul's qualifications as an apostle. So in the first four chapters of the letter, Paul was directly confronting those issues before he moved on in the letter to address other topics and even to answer some of the questions that they had of him. Chapter 4, therefore, is the conclusion of his confrontation of them. But even though he was basically concluding his discussion of the problems, he still has something to say that relates to that discussion He wants to help them think rightly about ministers, not just about himself, but all ministers. Now today is a good day for us to study something like that. It's a good day to think rightly about ministers because today is what we have designated TES Sunday. That stands for the Expositors Seminary, as you know. We are highlighting today the privilege we have of being one of the 11 campuses of the Expositors Seminary. And as a TES campus, we are actively involved in, therefore, training men for the ministry. 
So let's look together at what our passage tells us about ministers. More specifically, Paul gives us a look at ministers in the Lord's church from four different perspectives. Here's perspective number one, the minister's job description. The minister's job description, beginning at verse one, let a man regard us in this manner. This is just Paul's way of saying, look, here's how you ought to be thinking about leaders in the church. Notice the pronoun us, though, in this context. That pronoun refers specifically to Paul and Apollos and Cephas, another name for Peter. You find them mentioned in the previous chapter, verse 22. But what we find being said here is not just for them. It's relevant instruction for all ministers today as well. So with that in mind, the passage is going to help us see two important ways to describe the minister's job. Here's one way. Number one, they are servants. They are servants. Verse one, let a man regard us as servants. Now, of course, this is nothing new in the New Testament. Christ also taught that leaders are to have a servant attitude, be servants. For example, in Mark chapter 9, verse 35 The Lord said, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Mark chapter 10, verse 43, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Now, normally when we see the English term servants in the New Testament, we think it is likely the Greek term diakonos. That's a common term in the New Testament. It's the Greek term from which we get our English word deacons. However, that is not what we find in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1. Instead, it is from a different term that has the literal meaning under rower. Under rower. In other words refers to the slaves who rowed below the ship's deck that would make them the lowliest of common sailors. But even though that's the etymology of the term, you don't actually find it used that way anywhere in ancient Greek literature. Instead, it's more common to find what it came to mean in usage over time, which is the idea of an assistant or an agent who receives orders. Now with that meaning, meaning it was commonly used to describe then a wide range of activities and roles from menial laborers even to an agent who is subordinate to someone else. So here in our passage, it is best to see it as that last idea, an agent who submits to a higher ranked authority. Therefore, this is what the minister is. He is an agent who is subject to direction from another. Ministers, therefore, have no authority of their own. Instead, their whole business is to carry out what they've been commanded to do. Their whole duty is administering the affairs of another. That is what is meant by servant here. But... Servants of whom? 
Well, verse 1 tells us, servants of Christ. Ministers act under the direction of Christ. We are doing the Lord's will. So even though we do tend to think as, of ministers as being servants in the church, and ministers even serve the church, still the church is not their master. They are commissioned to that ministry by the Lord himself. So our ministry is not about us. We are here to point to Christ. The work done is not our work. It is the work of our master. That's one way to capture the job description. Here's a second way. They're not only servants, but number two, they are stewards. Stewards. Verse one. And stewards of the mysteries of God. Now today, the term steward is not used as much as it used to be. It might prompt thoughts about the flight attendant on an airplane. We used to use the word steward or stewardess. The word steward might be used on a ship still. But in the ancient world, the office of steward normally included responsibility for a number of household duties or even the general uh, running of a business but only as instructed within the guidelines agreed to and set up by the head of the house or the owner of the business. Now, in Romans chapter 16, verse 23, we find the same Greek word used by Paul in referring to Erasmus. In 16.23 of Romans, it says that Erasmus was the city treasurer, and it's the same Greek term. So perhaps it helps us today to think of this in terms of what we might call an estate manager. But regardless of the particular assignment, this person, the steward, is not just a freelance operator. He's one responsible for overseeing operations as he has been instructed to do it. So the point is that ministers in the church are caretakers of something belonging to someone else. Now, what specifically do ministers manage and take care of? Again, verse 1, the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God. Now, this term mystery occurs frequently in the New Testament, but it's not used the way we normally think of it as a whodunit story, you know, determining who the murderer is in a mystery uh, program or book, the term mystery in the New Testament frequently refers to various facets of gospel truth that were not as clearly revealed in the Old Testament, but later made clearer in the New Testament after the coming of Christ. And that's how it's used here to refer to the gospel, but the gospel in all its fullness. So basically, in the broadest sense, it does refer to truth, the truth of God. Now, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 10, in that great section about the ministry of the Holy Spirit inspiring scripture, it says in chapter 2, verse 10, that this truth is called the depths of God. That would be another way to refer to the mysteries of God. It's the depths of God or the deep things of God. But again, it's the truth. 
So the bottom line in our text is that church leaders have been entrusted with something, a prized possession, the truth, a message, and therefore we are to know it, we are to proclaim it, and we are to guard it. This is what Paul sought to impress upon his own trainee in the ministry, his own young disciple, Timothy. Here's what he told him in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. Verse 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. He says something similar in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14. Guard what the Holy Spirit has given you. Guard the treasure, he says, which has been entrusted to you. That gives us then a good definition of stewardship when it comes to ministers. Stewardship requires us to be caretakers of the truth. It requires us to be dispensers of biblical truth. And as we care for it and as we proclaim it, we've got to make sure that it does not lose any of its substance in how we're handling it. That means we certainly cannot be guilty of corrupting the word of God or twisting it, or using it deceitfully, tampering with it, distorting it. We are here to clearly set forth the truth by rightly dividing it, as Paul says elsewhere, handling it accurately. And we're to set it forth in simple statements, clear statements, direct, intelligent statements. Therefore, you could say that the steward's business is bridging the gap, if you will, bridging the gap between the depths of God, the mysteries of God, God's word, and the mind of the believer. And we do that through the systematic, accurate teaching of it. And of course, systematic teaching demands something of us. It demands serious, systematic study. And that demands painstaking accuracy. That's the job description of the minister. They are servants. They are stewards. Well, that understanding of the summary job description then sets the stage now for the second perspective about ministers. Number two, the minister's primary qualification. The minister's primary qualification. We're at verse two. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. That is the essential qualification. That is the ultimate qualification of ministers. Trustworthiness or faithfulness. Now one of the problems in the church at Corinth was that the people were grading their leaders on the criteria of worldly wisdom or their eloquence or even their physical appearance. Sometimes people today do something similar. They grade ministers according to the wrong standards. Perhaps they look at a man's success or they look at his background or they look at his ability to show initiative and to cast vision. They look at his personality and so on. But God says here he demands something very different. The one qualification Paul counsels us to notice is a minister's faithfulness. Faithfulness to God, 
faithfulness to the task God has given him of being a steward of the mysteries of God. This is the qualification by which stewards are judged. And that means they must be completely reliable in that task, completely faithful to do what the master requires. Now, yes, there are other skills that are helpful. It's, it's great that a leader can be known as, as always taking the initiative and you know, being proactive, as we put it. He should have skills and with how he works with people. And we can think of other helpful qualities. But at the end of the day, from God's perspective, the minister must be found to be this. Trustworthy. Faithful. Faithfully handling the mysteries of God, the truth of God. He's not to change it in any way. He's not to substitute something else in its place. And that must be evident in all aspects of his ministry. His preaching... And it doesn't change for his counseling. He's bringing the truth of the word of God to bear on the issues of life, even in discipleship and counseling. Not something else. He must be faithful in his dispensing and handling of the truth. That is what we are called to do. Now this is reinforced later on in the chapter when Paul says, if you look down at verse 17 of chapter 4... Paul says that he had sent Timothy to them. So note how Paul describes him in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17. I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And it's the same Greek term, of course. So to be faithful is to be trustworthy. To be trustworthy is to be faithful. What a unique qualification. What an important qualification ministers must meet. I like the way the commentator Godet put it. They go where Christ sends them and they deliver what God has given them. They are to be faithful to that to the end. So there's two perspectives Paul wants us to note here. The minister's job description, the minister's primary qualification that brings us to the third perspective the minister's ultimate evaluation. The minister's ultimate evaluation. There is accountability for the minister. He's to be held accountable. He's to be held accountable to his character. He's to be held accountable to his teaching and so on. But here's the question. Who has the ultimate right to assess a minister's ministry? Well, Paul is going to mention three possible sources of assessment of a leader's ministry. But he also confirms that only one of them is ultimately right. Here's the first one, number one, assessment by others. Assessment by others, verse 3. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court Now, you might read that, and at first reading, it might appear rather arrogant on Paul's part. I mean, it can almost sound like he's insulting the congregation. As if a pastor should continually remind the congregation, hey, I don't care what you people think about me. That's not the tone, not the idea. Instead, the point is that the steward, the estate manager, may be criticized for a lot of different reasons, but in the end... Only the owner's opinion matters. And therefore, only the owner's assessment should concern him. So it ultimately didn't matter what people were trying to render a verdict on. 
when it came to Paul and his ministry. And that's because it's just not their prerogative to do that. No humans are all-seeing. No humans are omniscient, all-knowing. And so that means their judgments end up being limited. They can even be mistaken. Human criteria to measure faithfulness can be faulty. So again, he's not being arrogant with this statement. And it doesn't mean that he never seeks to improve in some way and to take note of himself. It it doesn't mean that he could not be hurt by some unfair criticism. Of course that happens. It's just that he didn't get off track by criticism from others. He took it, but he kept going. And he kept doing what he believed was right. He knew that he was not the steward of some individual or some family in the church. He was God's steward. Even if Paul was summoned before a human court, he says, he adds that thought there in the verse. It's just making it sound like even if there's some official sort of meeting, a human court, he still says he regards it ultimately as something very small. And that's because people can only see what's outward. Or they can be utterly biased in their assessment. And the pastor must keep that reality in mind. Otherwise, he is very possibly tempted to the bondage of what the Bible calls the fear of man. The fear of man is caring too much about what people think. Here's what Proverbs 29 verse 25 says about the fear of man. Proverbs 29 25, the fear of man brings a snare. That means a trap. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. The one who cares too much about what people think, and this applies to everyone. I mean, everyone struggles with it at some level. But the one who cares too much about what people think can find themselves then in bondage to that. But the one who says it only matters what the Lord thinks, that person is the one who trusts in the Lord. And Proverbs says that person will be exalted, lifted up, confirmed, strengthened. Paul understood this about his own ministry in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Galatians is a little bit different than his other letters, at least the way he starts it. He says, hello, it's Paul, and then he jumps right in confronting them. They had abandoned the true gospel. And evidently, they had even criticized him as being a man pleaser. All he cared about was pleasing people. So after he confronts them so clearly... He says then in Galatians 1, so, would you call me a man pleaser now? Here's what he says in verse 10. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. It's a way of saying that the two cannot go together. They are oil and water. They cannot mix. Trying to please people and trying to please the Lord. So the bottom line is that it is not the prerogative of other humans to render a verdict, an ultimate verdict, on a man's ministry. So Paul addresses that possible source of assessment, assessment by others. Here's a second source, assessment by self. Note what Paul confesses in verse 3. In fact, I do not even examine myself. In other words, 
self-judgment can be skewed. It, it doesn't mean that, that we never take a look at ourselves in, in hopes of growing in some way. But the problem is we can easily think of ourselves as being what we're not. Many people may think of themselves as being faithful. Many ministers may think of themselves that way, of being faithful even when they are most unfaithful. So it's not enough that our own conscience does not condemn us, though a clear conscience is wonderful. We do seek that in the way we live our lives and keeping short accounts of our sin before the Lord, confessing of our sin, repenting of that daily, hourly if necessary. But our conscience at best is only a partial judge. It can often be unenlightened, untrained. It can be a subjective judge. So again, there's a place for some sincere heart-searching and some self-scrutiny with a view to more wholehearted service and more uh, efficient service for the Lord. But nevertheless, Paul knew that he could not be completely objective in evaluating his own thoughts, in evaluating his words, his deeds. So here's what he says, verse 4. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. Now in Greek there, the, the nothing is placed at the first for emphasis. It's really nothing against myself am I conscious of. So Paul is saying it very emphatically that at least as he wrote this, he wasn't aware of any disqualifying sin or failure. He wasn't aware of any wrongdoing with respect to his, his role as an apostle. Now, he wasn't claiming sinless perfection. We know that. This is the same man who wrote elsewhere that he was the chief of sinners. But as far as faithfulness went, faithfulness as a minister, as a steward, he says, my conscience is clear as far as I can know it. But the problem with our consciences is that they've been corrupted by the fall, by sin, just like every aspect of our humanness. So a clear conscience may just simply be the product of a bad memory. We just don't remember everything we've done. It may be the product, even worse, of just a a denial of our sin or our failure. There is another extreme on the conscience spectrum, by the way. And that is those people who have consciences that accuse them falsely. It's an oversensitive conscience. That's a problem as well. It's not a biblically trained conscience. And because of that, they live with with unnecessary guilt, undue guilt. And Paul understood that this is possible, both extremes. So he's basically saying, it doesn't matter what my conscience is telling me, ultimately, So what if my own conscience is even clear? That doesn't mean that I'm actually vindicated. The bottom line is a minister dares not put final emphasis on what others think about him. And he dares not estimate his own worth that way in his own ministry according to his own evaluation either. Instead, there's only one evaluation that ultimately matters, and that's the third source of assessment. Number three, assessment by the Lord. Verse 4 concludes, but the one who examines me is the Lord. The assessment of Christian workers that truly counts is not a congregational assessment. 
It's not a denominational perspective or viewpoint or verdict. It's not even a personal one. Only the evaluation by the Lord who assigned the minister his task is the one that matters. Now look back at chapter 3, verse 5. I told you they were guilty of a party spirit in this church. That got fleshed out by sort of uh, following different leaders. And you know, they had that, those sayings. They would say, well, I'm of Apollos. Well, not me. I'm of Peter. Well, I'm of Paul. So here's what Paul says about that in chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each. Whatever ministry and influence and impact that Apollos or Paul or Peter or anyone had was due to God's sovereignty. God gave them the ministry. God gave them the skills. God gave them the opportunity. Therefore, since it's God who puts ministers in their ministries and equips them for that, For that ministry, the ultimate prerogative to evaluate a minister's ministry is therefore God's alone. And the Lord will do that. He will evaluate every leader's ministry. This is back in chapter 3, starting in verse 10. There's a section there where Paul is instructing all those who came after him, who would be bringing more truth and more teaching, they better handle the truth accurately. He puts it in these terms. They better build upon the right foundation. Paul laid the right foundation. It was a doctrinal one. He taught about Christ and the gospel and all the attendant doctrines. And therefore, all the teaching that comes after that must fit that foundation, be appropriate to it. And so he says there in verse, in chapter 3, that someday what a man has built on the foundation. In verse 13, it's going to come to light. There's going to be an evaluation. Each man's work will become evident. He's applying that specifically to those in teaching ministries. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. He says there's a day coming and it's the judgment seat of Christ. Not the great white throne judgment of unbelievers. The judgment seat of Christ. And there'll be a testing and it's set up as if it's in an atmosphere of fire because the piercing, burning eyes of the Lord will do the evaluation. Was there substance there? Was the minister faithful to his calling and what he taught? then what will come forth is gold and precious stones. But if it's not, it'll be wood, hay, and straw and be burned up. The fire will test the quality. So the question as to whether or not Paul was faithful was going to be decided by the Lord. He's the only one who has the right. He's the only one who has the necessary insight to ever evaluate what is true. So we're looking at the minister from, three, from these four perspectives. We've seen three, the minister's job description, the minister's primary qualification, the minister's ultimate evaluation, and finally the fourth one, the minister's eternal compensation. The minister's eternal compensation, verse 5. 
Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Just so you'll know, the way he worded it indicates that this was happening. It's this command with a negative, do not go on passing. They were doing this. So he's telling him it must stop. And the reason is that all such judgment is at best premature, but even worse, it can be faulty, it can be partial, it can be inconclusive. So judgments of a minister's stewardship and servanthood ultimately has to wait until he calls it the time. The time, verse 5, wait until the Lord comes. There again, it's another way of referring to the judgment seat of Christ. A judgment of believers only. At that time, the Lord will do what cannot be done by anyone else perfectly. What's going to happen at this judgment? Verse 5, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness... So there, just stop there for a moment, it reminds us and confirms that the Lord is the only one who's omnipotent. He's the only one who can search the the recesses of a person's heart. And even further, the Lord will make apparent what he does discover, verse 5 continues, and he'll disclose the motives of men's hearts. On that day, the truth about Christ's servants will be revealed even the truth about their motives, their intentions. Always remember that actions have motives behind them. There's thinking behind actions. There are motives connected with thinking, always, whether you recognize it or not. And people can hide even the thoughts and intentions of their hearts. In fact, many of these intentions never come to light in their true form during a person's earthly life. But God alone can bring to light people's secret acts and motives. Just so you'll know, this is emphasized several times in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, God's ability to know and search human hearts. Let me give you a few. Here's one, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. This is that great scene where the prophet is there in David's home and he's choosing a new king. And he looks at all those buff brothers that Jason had, that David had, and, and he, he makes a conclusion that it must be one of them. What does God tell the prophet? 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Yahweh, the ever-present God, the timeless God. The covenant God looks at the heart. Here's another one, 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9. The Lord searches all hearts. Again, it's Yahweh. The Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9. One more Old Testament. We're more familiar with this one. Jeremiah 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the mind. And then the writer of Hebrews says the same thing in the New Testament. Hebrews 4, verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Here's the point in our text then. Faithfulness, the job description. 
Faithfulness in handling the mysteries of God, truth, includes the character of the motives. That's the why. Why a minister does what he does. And judging that is a prerogative that only an omniscient God can rightly rightly claim or possibly even do. Now, I understand that we hear this, we read this, and this could sound fearful. This is not actually meant to be something to provoke fear. It's not something automatically negative, and Paul confirms that in verse 5. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. As you can see here, the focus is not about judgment or punishment or vindication or anything like that. The focus is about rewarding ministers. Now again, Paul has already said something like this back in chapter 3 in that section about the foundation and the building. There in that passage, he makes it clear that a minister's preaching must be sound and accurate. And so that's what is captured in the imagery of the gold and the silver and the precious stones in verse 12. But verse 13, as we saw, mentions that testing that's coming, the judgment seat of Christ. But then in verse 14, he goes on to say that there is, as a result of that testing, a future compensation For the one who's been faithful. Verse 14 of chapter 3. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. In the fiery testing, everything that was wasteful, everything that was inaccurate, everything that did not meet biblical standards, the, the wood, hay, and straw is consumed, it's burned up. If there's anything of value in that man's ministry... It remains, and that will be rewarded. Yes, a congregation can encourage a pastor by bestowing praise and honor upon him and respecting him. A congregation can even pay their minister. All that can be proper, it's good, it's encouraging, and so forth, but it's just not the ultimate things that matter. Instead, this scene in the future is going to matter. What the Lord will someday say, that's more important. Now, neither in chapter 3, when he mentions the reward there, or in chapter 4 in our text today, does Paul specifically point out what the reward is. We don't know. The wording of it makes it sound like it is something specific. But I think we could all agree that the greatest compensation will simply be just hearing the Lord say this, Well done, good and faithful servant. So, obviously, the point of the passage is clear, the overall point. Ministers need to recognize this. Ministers need to understand they're accountable to the God who has made them a steward of whatever ministry opportunity God has given them. And the primary requisite Of the stewardship is faithfulness, trustworthiness. There's the point overall. But I want to conclude with some other implications of all of this for us today. There are four of them. Here's the first implication. Prayer is needed for present and future ministers. Prayer is needed for future and present 
ministers. Now, I know that every minister makes mistakes. I know at least one does. And every pastor certainly has to endure some unfair criticism at times or complaints, even if it's only from a small number of people. And I admit, sometimes hard to process. It can hurt personally. It's just that a faithful minister doesn't change the path. Not when it comes to biblical preaching and teaching and biblical ministry. Certainly what he can't do is just preach in order to be liked by the people. He can't just preach to meet the felt needs of the congregation. Little steps on how to clean up their life and maybe be happier. No, we've got to concentrate on communicating the meaning of the biblical text and explaining the truth that we've been entrusted with and how it applies to life. So my point is, we need prayer for that. Pray for your elders here to be faithful in doing this. Pray that we would be faithful to the end in taking the mysteries of God and making them plain and clear and applicable. But one more thing. This is TES Sunday. Pray for our seminary students. Pray for them even now as they study. Pray that they'll be faithful in their studies. It's difficult, challenging, the schedule, the academic load, all of that. Pray for them that they'll be faithful now and pray for their future ministry opportunities even now. Pray that they'll be faithful stewards someday, wherever God takes them. So prayer is needed for present and future ministers. Implication number two, our ultimate loyalty is to Christ. Our ultimate loyalty is to Christ. That's true of each of us, especially when it comes to church leaders. Listen, church leaders are hardly worthy of any kind of ultimate loyalty or attachment And that's because they themselves are answering to someone higher up. So make your loyalty to that one. Your ultimate loyalty is to the same one to whom the minister is accountable. And that's to Christ. Put it more bluntly, keep your eyes focused on Christ. Christ is a wonderful Savior even when ministers fail. Implication number three, all Christians need to be faithful. Not just ministers that need to be faithful to the stewardship God's given them. That's true. That's the point of this passage. But where do we learn faithfulness as ministers? We look at the faithfulness of God. God's faithfulness is the model for ministers to emulate. But we are to model that for you as well. And you are to look at God's faithfulness. So his faithfulness is the model that all of us should take encouragement from. God never is unfaithful. God never changes. That's why he never fails us. He is never unfaithful at any moment. And that faithfulness ought to prompt each of us to be faithful to him every day in our homes, in our marriages, our families, at job, faithful in thought, faithful in word, in motive, in deed, and certainly in faithfulness in using our giftedness in service. That faithfulness ought to be demonstrated in your serving through whatever local body the Lord has placed you in 
Just remember the words of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As each one has received a special gift. That broadens this teaching from Scripture to everyone in the church family. Each one has received a certain kind of giftedness from the, from the Lord. As each one has received that, it says there, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We're all stewardship, stewards of his grace. 1 Peter 4.10. And lastly, the last implication, of course this implication could be true of any passage I preach. The fourth implication is this. These implications are only for true believers. Numbers 1, 2, and 3. If you've never come to the point of trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin, entrusting yourself to the Lord, following him as the Lord of your life, then the message to you today is very singular. It's not think through all these other things as much as it is come to him. Entrust yourself to him. Ask him to be merciful to you and and to forgive you. And as his word says in 1 John 1 verse 10, he is faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful promise. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage, especially as an elder, as a teacher. Thank you for all this reminds us of as elders that this is what you expect of us. This is how you view our ministry. We're accountable to you for the shepherding of the sheep here. Lord, we thank you that you're a forgiving God, that all of our failures, all of our sin was placed upon Christ that there's no wrath or punishment for us. It was all placed upon him. But what you do now is you teach us, you correct us out of your love. And so we thank you for the teaching and the correction that comes from passages like this. So we keep our eyes on you. We seek to be faithful to you, whatever ministry role we have in the church. And Lord, we thank you for whatever ministry opportunities you do give each of us. I do pray for anyone here who really can't say, I've come to that place where I've, I'm no longer trusting in myself, I'm not trusting in my own goodness or turning over a new leaf or trying to improve or being different. I pray for the one who needs to come to the end of themselves and to say, my only hope is to rest in Christ. Open that person's heart that they might entrust themselves to you for the forgiveness of their sin and follow you then all the days of their lives, so that they can can know the joy of faithfully serving you. In our Savior's name, amen.